You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 3, let's look together at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord this morning bless the reading of his word. I don't know how your mind works this morning. I'll tell you how mine slightly works. I have thousands of things going on in my mind all the time. I mean, all the time. If my, op- my eyes open at four in the morning, my mind starts to think about conversations, people to see, portions of scripture, movies I want to see. I mean, there are things that go on all the time. And I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a place or a point where your mind wasn't completely engaged in a conversation or an activity? Now, I'm not talking about Sunday morning service, because I know that happens quite often. Years ago, I was going to the bank to make withdrawal, and it was one of those days that my mind was sort of just snapping here and there, thinking about a bunch of things. And as I um, gave the, the check to the, the teller there, I was thinking, and she said to me, what denomination? And my mind was working, and I thought, in a split second, here's what I thought. This is really strange. Why in the world would it matter what my denomination is? I just want money out of my bank. Is it going to matter? Do I have the wrong aunt? And this is what I'm thinking. And so she asked the question. My mind sort of just froze, and I said, Baptist? And she she was not asking about my branch of Christianity. She was asking about a banknote. And and then in that very instant, my mind clicked, and I realized what I just said, made a fool of myself, and she was perplexed. Oh, no, small bills are fine. Small bills are fine, right? And um, there are times in our lives when it was just not, you know, hitting on all the cylinders there. We don't actually see or hear or observe like we ought to. And, and I know that you've been there. You've done that. Uh, the great naturalist of the 19th century, Louise Agassiz, was renowned in zoology, uh, genealogy, not genealogy, geology. Um, he was a professor at Harvard. And he was famous um, for, for his teaching style. And he would have college freshmen come in to his class. They would flock to hear him. And on the first day, he would take a dead, stinky fish on a dissecting tray, shove it under the nose of the freshman and say, observe, and write everything down that you see. The freshman would be excited. They'd begin to write. And 
Agassiz would just leave the classroom. He'd just disappear. And so the kid would write, and the next day they'd come back to class, and the professor would say, how'd it go? And the young man or young woman would say, great, I found 37 things about this fish. And Agassiz would say, wonderful, keep observing. And he would leave the room. This happened for two weeks. Two weeks. So you can imagine, if you're like me, it's like, wait a minute, I just found 37 things. There's nothing left to see about this fish. But that's not what happened. After two weeks, his students would have page after page after page of observations they made about that fish. And when he was asked of his greatest contribution to the scientific community, here's what he said. I have taught men and women to observe. Now, zoology might not be your thing, right? Maybe you're a Sherlock Holmes kind of person who said, you see, but you do not observe. I think so often in our lives, especially when it comes to the word of God, we see it, but we don't observe. We we don't really dive deep and look. How many times have you and I read scripture We read a chapter, and by the end of it, we couldn't tell someone for our life what we just read. Ever happened to you? Or that we've read it, and it's like, okay, no big deal. Or we just ignore it and walk away. And that really is problematic. And for God's people this morning, for all of us, I want to challenge us today in the text to see and observe the Scripture, what it's saying, what it means, And then to see and observe ourselves. Um, And we are at a disadvantage. I didn't preach last week, so I've been in this text for two weeks now. And so I've been observing. And I have to tell you, it is full. And so when we come to a portion of Scripture like this, this narrative, I want us this morning to see and I want us to observe. Because as we read here, like any other portion of Scripture, this text has a context. It has a place. It has a purpose. It's there for a reason. It names people, right? We should know who they are, their significance, their history. We should know who's speaking, what they're saying, to whom they're speaking, and what's not being said. Sometimes it's really important. And as we observe, we should then say, what is this teaching us? What's it teaching us about God, about man, about creation, about the Savior, and about Jesus Christ, especially in the Old Testament. Because every story whispers his name, and he's there. And then as we observe, we ought then to make application. We don't just do the James chapter 1, look in the mirror and walk away. We then ask ourselves, okay, is there a sin to avoid, a promise to claim, an example to follow or not to follow, a command that I need to keep, or knowledge about God that will change me. And I'm telling you something this morning. If we would just take the time to see and observe and find out what the Scripture is saying, not making things up. Listen to me. You don't have to make things up as you read or preach or teach. This book is full. It is rich. It is deep. It's inexhaustible. But we need to observe. And so my prayer this morning is that we will do just that as we look at our text. So let's look back at the text this morning, 1 Kings chapter 3. 
And I want you to notice that in the text, we are given a, a number of things that we know. Okay, we know about Solomon's actions. And there's a whole thing, bunch of things we'll talk about this week and the weeks to come. But we know his actions. But I want you to keep in mind now as we go through this text, which I think is very important, Solomon's attitude. Because there's a lot of things he does, and we can talk about those things and maybe disagree with some of those things and what it means. But here's the truth. Here's what we know about his attitude. Verse number 3, and Solomon loved the Lord. And the writer tells us that because he wants us to know that at this stage of his life, Solomon truly loved the Lord. No doubt. So, so whatever we read today, whatever we observe today, understand Keep in your mind, Solomon loved the Lord. If I were a betting man today, and I'm not, but I should be, I bet Scott Thompson that one team would win the other day, and they did. You owe me $5. Um, uh, But if I were a betting man, I would say that the majority of people in this room this morning would say, I love the Lord. Right? I'm here. And not all of you. I, I know that. And I'm not delusional. I know that. But you would say, I love the Lord. Like Solomon, my attitude this morning is simply this. Lord, I love you. I just love you. That was Solomon's attitude. And what I want you to know this morning is we can have that attitude, and we should have that attitude, but believers who have that attitude are still capable of making unwise decisions, of doing their things, doing things their own way, and rejecting the word of God. Not just for Solomon, but for all saints. And so keep that in mind now as we work our way through the text this morning. And when I say work our way through the text, we're going to get through chapter uh, 3, verse number 1. That's as far as we're getting today. Okay? Look with me at verse number 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter, and brought her into the city of David. So, let's observe, shall we? The first thing I want you to notice is Egypt. Okay? Now, what do we know about Egypt from world history at this time and place in the history of Israel? What do, we, do you know anything about the nation Egypt at this time? What are they like? Are they... Big, small, little, powerful, not powerful, insignificant, or are they a player in the world stage? Anybody know? Yeah, they're a superpower. Egypt at this point is not like Egypt today. Egypt at this point is a superpower. Um, they had arrived. They had a military. They had every. They were it. They were a superpower. And so right away we start off with. Egypt here, a superpower, and the Bible tells us that Solomon, the new king of this small, tiny nation of Israel, gets a peace treaty with them. I have to tell you something. That's pretty impressive. It would be the equivalent of Jamaica making a peace treaty with the U.S. Or China. Or Russia. Maybe Canada. I don't know. But you know, we think about those players as superpowers. I mean, and here it is. Here is Solomon now, the king of Israel, and he, this is the art of the deal man, he has now entered into a treaty with a superpower, and Israel now is on the stage of the world. They have arrived. Well, let me ask you a question. 
from what we know from the Bible. Do your spider senses tingle a little bit when you hear Egypt? Is Egypt usually in a negative or positive connotation? Negative. Almost always. You go down to Egypt. Abraham went down to Egypt, found Hagar down there. Israel went down to Egypt in slavery. And so right off the bat, we have a little bit of a problem here because, yes, Israel has arrived. Yes, they're on this, the world stage. They have, they have masterfully had this, this treaty with the world's superpower, but yet it's Egypt. What's the next thing we see? How does Solomon pull off this magnificent feat? He takes Pharaoh's daughter and marries her. What a great way to assure peace. You take the king of a superpower and you marry his daughter, so it makes it really hard for him to attack you. Right? I mean, I'm living with your daughter. So let me ask you a question with this now. Good idea or bad idea? Good or bad? Bad. Why? Because Egyptian women are ugly? Is that why? Different faith. This this woman is outside the covenant. It has nothing to do with what she looks like. She's outside the covenant. She is not a follower of Yahweh. And so here's the story. So, so what's the writer telling us? Is he saying, look, it, I want you to know something. Solomon's the king, and in his wisdom, he brings this little nation into this pact with a superpower. Israel has arrived. Look at them now. I mean, they have an allegiance, an alliance with Egypt. Wow, look at where they've come. Look what Solomon's done. Or is he saying, wait a minute. This is the beginning of the end. This is the start of infidelity in Solomon's heart. This is a pulling away from Yahweh. Or is he telling us both? Or both? Now listen to me. I want you to get this. This is not, we read verse number three. Solomon loves the Lord. He loves him. This is not flagrant disobedient, flagrant rebellion. This is not defiance. And Solomon said, I'll tell you what, I'm the king. I'll do my own thing. That's not it. The truth is, Looking at this, this is brilliant by Solomon. I have, I have secured peace for my nation. It seems like a great idea. But Solomon knew the word of the Lord. As the king, he had to read the law. That was his job. And as innocent as it might seem to Solomon and to the casual reader, this is certainly the beginning of of the end for Solomon. He will now go from this point, and you'll see, he'll make mistake after mistake until finally, the one woman wasn't enough. His heart is drawn away from the Lord. People can love the Lord and make bad decisions when they step outside of what the Word of God says. And and I, I don't know for sure, but the truth is, Solomon has made a decision that he found acceptance, He found approval. He's a player now on the stage of the world. And it was his downfall. And we as God's people can do the same. If what drives us or motivates us is acceptance, being somebody, arriving, making sure that people like us and respect us and know about us, it's the first step of going down a slippery, slippery slope. 
What made Israel great? It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't his wisdom. It wasn't his brilliance. It wasn't this power play with Egypt. It wasn't marrying a woman to make sure they had peace. That's not what made Israel great. What made Israel great was her God. It had nothing to do with Solomon. It had nothing to do with the treaty. It had nothing to do with any of those things. It was God, Jehovah, Jireh, the Lord himself made Israel great. And what makes the believer great this morning? It's not our brilliance. It's not our charisma. It's not the fact that we've been accepted by people and they think we're cool now or we've arrived somehow or we've made this great decision. And I know it may fudge a little bit with what the Bible says, but look what I've accomplished. Look look what I've secured. Look how I've got this security now in my life. That's not what makes the believer great at all. What makes us great has nothing to do with us. It's our identity in Jesus Christ. That's what makes a believer great. That this morning, because of Jesus Christ, I am complete in him. I am accepted in the beloved. I am forgiven, justified, sanctified. I am redeemed. I am washed. I am born again. I am a son or a daughter of the king. That's what makes the believer great. It has nothing to do with us or the fact that we've arrived or the community respects us or look where I'm at the table here. It's none of those things. It's not in my plan or program. It's not in what I've achieved or how I'm perceived. It is in Jesus Christ. And what makes us great is our God and obedience to his word. And we start doing things for other reasons, no matter how sincere or how innocent they might seem, we will be in trouble. And so this morning, let me give you several things to remember as we look at Solomon. This is the beginning, right? This is Solomon's reign. This is where he starts. And he starts by just fudging a little bit, probably for the right reasons, for the right motive. I mean, it's good for Israel to be safe. But what he did was wrong. He has forgot his calling. His calling wasn't to make a treaty. His calling wasn't to marry someone outside the covenant. His calling was to be a servant of the Lord Most High. And we're in trouble this morning when we forget our calling. Christian, what's your calling? Is it to be accepted, to be approved, to find a place at the table of the world to say, look at me now, look how smart and educated and sophisticated I am. Look who we are, look what we've done. Take your Bibles this morning. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think Paul helps us with this. 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse number 17. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now, let me think what he just said. He said, there is a way that you could preach the gospel that makes it ineffective. Because when we really think about the gospel, at first glance, it is foolishness. Foolishness. I was listening to a guy on the radio. No, he was on the computer. Uh, Radio is not the same thing, I guess. Anyways, I was listening to a guy on the computer. He was a preacher from 1960. And I know you're thinking I'm going off on a rabbit trail, and maybe I am, but I, I think to get back here in a minute. So he's preaching in the 60s. And he was talking about humanism. 
And what he said was humanism at that time um, had sort of just crept into everything. And humanism is, right, no God, and the end justifies the means, and the end is this, human happiness. No matter what it takes, just to make human beings happy. So do whatever you want to do as long as, in the end, you are happy, right? No, no matter what the area is. So that's humanism. And he said, we would never tell people, and just be happy. But then he started to talk about how this idea of humanism and human happiness has crept into the church. And we would never say, hey, all I want for you, brother or sister, just be happy. Do what you want to do. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy, man. Right? That's what, just be happy. But the church wouldn't do that. But he said back in the 60s and 70s, what started happening is this. The church fell into humanism by saying, no, you shouldn't do that. But if you pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart, you will be eternally happy. That sounds really good. But that's not the gospel. And so what's happened is the church now, to be accepted and to make the gospel look better, the church has become like PR guys for God because we got to change the gospel because, listen, nobody wants to go to hell. Everyone wants to go to heaven, so let's just talk about heaven. But I want to tell you something. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what's happened is we fudged on this, and we're preaching a gospel that is ineffective. What, what fool would not, hey, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Who says no? I ain't gonna, no nobody says that. And so what the church has been doing over the years is this. We've been trying to convince good men and good women that they're in trouble with a bad God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is pleading with bad men and bad women that they deserve the wrath and the anger of a holy, righteous, just God. And that's different. It's really different. Can I tell you something about sinners? We love our sin. We love our sin. And the truth is, at one point, all of us, we're happy about it. I don't want you, God. I don't want your authority. I don't want anything about you. I love my sin. I'm happy in my sin. And I am an enemy combatant of the God of heaven. And the truth of the matter is, in that state, you and I deserve the wrath of Almighty God. And it's not like I just want to be happy and go to heaven. No, we are condemned by him. Did you ever wonder why Christian people can say a prayer, get saved, and never want to be in church? Never want to read the word? Never want to be around other believers? Never convicted of sin? Could it be that they're not saved? And could it be in our own churches that we bought this idea that God just wants to make me happy, and so, you know, I'm not committed. Church is an option. Not sure about anything. I just want to go be happy in heaven. Can I tell you something this morning? You ought to repent if you're lost. Why? To be happy in heaven? No, because you're under the wrath of God right now, and Jesus Christ suffered in your place. God's wrath was poured out on his head for you, and he is worthy of your repentance. He is worthy of his reward. He should get all glory. And that's the truth. And so this idea that, you know, what's your calling? Our calling is to serve the king of the universe, whether we're happy or not, whether we're rich or poor, whether he does anything else for us, he has done it all at Calvary. And he's worthy this morning. And so Paul says, you know your calling. The preaching of this gospel, it's foolishness to people. And let's admit it, it's foolish. 
I mean, really, standing up here with a group of people in here, telling them about the cross of Calvary and our sins and the need of redemption, it sounds like foolishness. And it is to those who don't believe. But look what happens, Paul says. Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. Why? The Spirit of God opened your eyes, opens your heart, we see the truth of our condition, we come to Christ. Verse 19, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now here he goes. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men, after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Now here's our calling. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are not. That word base here is really interesting. It literally means without kin. Without kin, without family. And in a culture that, that reputation and status was everything, to say, well, I don't have a family background like that was humiliating. It would be the equivalent today of saying, like, hey, who's your daddy? And you say, ah, my daddy's just a, a barefoot hillbilly. Nothing wrong with hillbillies. They're my people, right? I'm all for hillbillies. But that's right, sister. Melissa, I love you. Um, nothing wrong with hillbillies. But we know as hillbillies, we, we ain't got good stock, Right? And the point is, listen, here's what God chooses. The foolish, the weak, those who haven't made a name for themselves, things that are base. He goes on to say things that are not. You know, someone says, you're not all that. You're not even, you're not. You're just not. That's what he says. You say, Pastor, this is really hurting my self-esteem this morning. Yeah, I need your safe space. My self-esteem. Can I tell you something? As hard as that may sound, this doesn't hurt the self-esteem for the believer because it's the truth. We know that God is great and God is good, and in his mercy and love, he redeems us. As a matter of fact, look, look what he says there. Um, we'll just jump down uh, to verse number 30. Well, 29 says, That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You know why this doesn't bother me? You know, the truth is, you know why this builds me up? Because in Christ, I am complete. I am redeemed. I have his wisdom and sanctification and redemption. And so I know who I am. And God has chosen those things that are weak. Why? So that he is glorified. So when we have this attitude like, hey, I want to be accepted. I want to be approved. I want a place at the table. It really matters to me what people think of me. We are one step away from making bad decisions based on how people accept us or how, how they feel about us. And God says, wait a minute, remember your calling. We forget our calling. Christian, we are broken. 
we're, we're all broken. And our calling is to say, God, here's this brokenness. And by your grace and by your power, show Christ to the world through this brokenness. Don't forget your calling. Don't forget your Christ. Think about our God, our hero, our leader. Think about what he thought about being accepted, having a big crowd, having a following, you know, thinking about I've come to the table and I finally arrived in the religious community. In John chapter 6, he's preaching. He just fed the 5,000, um, and, and he's preaching away, and people start following him, and they're coming not so much for the preaching, but for the free hot dogs. They're coming for the picnic. That's it. And so Jesus starts to preach, and he starts preaching. He says, I think you're just coming for the free picnic. And they said, well, Moses gave us this bread. And he said, I'm the bread. And they just want real bread. He says, I, I'm telling you, I'm the bread from heaven. I've come down. And if you want to live, you've got to eat this bread. And he goes off on this, eat this bread, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're mortified. And they're, they're starting to grumble, saying, what is he talking about? And you would think that Jesus would stop and say, oh, okay, wait a minute. Let me tell you what I'm talking about and take it easy on him. It gets worse. I mean, it gets worse. So bad that at the height of his popularity... Everybody takes off. This is too hard. I can't handle this. And Jesus turns to his 12 and says, are you going too? If he was worried about a crowd, I'll tell you, he would have changed the message. He would have cleared it up quickly. He wasn't worried about the crowd. He wasn't worried about acceptance. And Peter makes that great statement, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no place to go. This is our Savior. And so it's confusing that we start making decisions on acceptance and what the world says is conventional wisdom and being approved by other people. Listen to how Isaiah describes our Savior. Isaiah 53, you know this, verse number 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. This is Christ. And Isaiah says, when we saw him, he was so despised, we wanted nothing to do with him. And in case you missed what he's saying, the very next thing he says is, hey, he was despised twice, and we esteemed him not. We had no regard or value for him. This is our Savior. He was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And so here comes Solomon along. And he has good motives, he has good intentions, he loves the Lord, he knows the word. He starts making decisions about securing peace, having acceptance being brought to the table. He makes a huge mistake. Not just Solomon, but all saints. We must stop striving. Stop it. About being first, being recognized, arriving. Look at me, look what I've done. I'm in the in crowd now, whatever that is. Stop self-promotion. I was talking to a guy a couple weeks ago, and as I was talking to him, he was talking, and I couldn't tell you how many times he said, I, 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 me, 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 me. I wanted to record it. It was all about, well, I, but, 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 and me, and, but, but. it was ridiculous. And we do that. We get wrapped up in that. You don't believe me? Look at social media. Facebook, Twitter, Snapface. I know it's not that. I'm not that. I know it's not Snapface. Snapchat. 
Instagram, right? Look at, I have the best food. I have the best family. I got the hottest wife. I got this. I got that. Look at all this. Look at, we've arrived. I am. I'm, I'm rooting back for the days when you start putting your ketchup sandwiches and grape juice back on there. That was good. This is real life. This is who I am. Stop that. And when this drives us, we'll make decisions that aren't based on the word of God. And it's a trap. It's a trap. And Solomon gets caught. The wisest man that lives is caught in a trap. I've got to be accepted. We know what God says. We know what he says. It makes me laugh when people come to our church and say, uh, I want more. I want more Bible. Okay. Uh, Sunday morning. Sunday night. Expository preaching. Maybe not so much today, but usually expository preaching. Sunday morning, Sunday night. You want more Bible? Wednesday. Growth groups. More Bible. Sunday school. More Bible. Little ladies meeting. Mary and Martha. Titus 2. More Bible. Uh, How about men's breakfast? More Bible. I mean, there's Bible everywhere. And the truth is, it's not that we need more Bible. It's we got to start doing what the Bible says that we do know. Get off base there. We make poor decisions. This morning, my dear friend, I know you love the Lord for most of you. We get caught up in this trap of what do people think of me? Will I be accepted? Have I arrived? We're in real trouble when we start to fudge. Do you know something this morning? We've forgotten our calling, we've forgotten our Christ, and now we compromise. Because this acceptance thing and, and being on the world stage for us is really big. Can I tell you something this morning? Do you know why you and I don't witness to our family and friends? Because we're called to witness. The Bible says that we, you are my witnesses. Do you know why we don't do it? Because we're afraid that they won't accept us. We're afraid that they'll think less of us. We're afraid that they will reject us. That's just me talking. I guess maybe I'm the only one. So here's what we do. We don't talk to them about the gospel anymore. We wait until they're on their deathbed. And then when they're on their deathbed, maybe then I'll talk to them about their salvation. And then who cares if they reject me because they're dying anyways? Do you know what I'm saying? What's happened is I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. I need to be exalted. Look what I've done. How smart I am. And this is what goes on. We start making decisions based on our need to be accepted. We bow to peer pressure. Do you know why Christian people go along with everybody else in the world? Because we want to be accepted. It's a terrible thing. And listen, just let you know, this idea of acceptance, it's not a junior high thing. I'm talking to 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds who long to be accepted. Um, We were in Guatemala uh, last year, and we were at this little place at this river, and there was a bridge going across the river, and these these little Guatemalan kids were jumping off the bridge into the water. It must have been 50 feet. Is that fair? Higher? Lower? No? 10 feet? It was not 10 feet. Travis, what was it? 35, 40 feet, at least 40 feet. Um, and so here we are, and, and we're there, and you're watching, and this little kid who could speak hardly any English, he, he's probably like eight years old or something, is mocking us. And, and he's swearing at us, actually. And he's, you, ba, 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 watch this. And so he jumps on the top of the bridge and just dives off. 
and like calling us wimps and whatever else he was saying, and it was bad. And so we're standing there, and the next thing I know, here's Travis jumping off the bridge into the water. It's like, are you insane? And then David goes. That kid doesn't have any sense. And then Andrew jumps in. Then you jumped in there, Andrew, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And then some 48-year-old jumps in. <laughs> and then Jess jumped in. Who else jumped in? Anybody else? Is that all of them? Megan did, right? There's peer pressure all around us. And I'm telling you, you feel it. And when we move away from what's really important in life, Solomon didn't have to make a peace treaty with, with Egypt. He had the Lord. And this morning, we don't have to worry about being at someone's table, being accepted and approved of and finding a place. My brother and sister in Christ, we're already at the table. We're at the table already, man. We've been invited in to feast with the King of Glory. And so in Christ this morning, we have identity. And whether you're the stock boy at Sobeys or the stock market CEO, we are in Christ. We need to remember that. It doesn't matter what people think or trying to get in or, or make my way. I don't need that. Because when that starts to drive us, we start making decisions that are contrary to the word of God. And eventually, that will catch up to us and destroy us. And so this morning, listen to me. Um, look to the word of God. See it. Observe it. Ask the questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how, what's happening here? What does God want for me? to know from this and take away. And then see and observe our own lives. To be honest and say, Lord, do you know what? I've been living for acceptance. I've been living to find a place there, to move up. This is what I, I can see it in my life. And I know I've been making decisions based on that. I'm telling you something, believer, we've all done it. You will not end up in a good place. It's impossible. So how about we glean some wisdom from the wisest man that ever lived? Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon made a really bad decision. And, and maybe in innocence, maybe in real concern and desire to help his country, it was a brilliant move by all means, except by God's. And it will cost him. It will cost us. So, observe the word. Don't just read it. Observe it. And then observe our own lives. Let's have wisdom. You don't need any table. You're at the table already. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.